Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. Good morning to you. We're coming from Studio 1.5 today. Just letting you know in case there are any bangs or rustles or noises that sound a bit strange. That's why we're, we're off-site. Everyone else is in there. And I'm in Studio 1.5 for the next day or two. That's all you need to know. You don't need to care as to why. Good morning. 0818 96 96 96. The number of the text to WhatsApp is 083 396 96 96. And your email is, as usual, opinion at 96fm.ie. Emer and Fergal on phones. If you want to join any of our conversations this morning, I'll be talking later to Dr. Chris Luke. How the hell do we sort out what? going on in our hospitals. Chris wrote quite a long piece about it in the examiner and I've spoken to him many times over the years about how we might fix the mess. So I'll catch up with him after 10 o'clock. But before that, here is a fascinating story. A man who went missing seven years ago and his family, or at least some members of his family, now think, but no idea, they think he might be in West Cork. I speak of a man called Rory Johnson Hatfield. He was 29 years of age. He'd never been to Cork. He'd never even been to Ireland. But he went missing in York. A journalist called David Dunning has been following this story since the time that Rory went missing. I'll be talking to David in a while about why the family think. They just think that he might be somewhere in West Cork. But for the last number of years, David has been conducting almost an annual interview with Rory's mom, Liz. Uh, and here are some of the, the most recent chat that they've been having. What we are going to do this year is, well, we've actually approached a few newspapers in, in Ireland. My cousins both worked in Ireland right at the beginning when Rory did go missing. 
she's always just had that feeling and she just said that obviously with working there and she worked in the really remote places that it is one of the easiest places to go missing i do believe that rory's out there my gut instinct a mother's instinct and that's what i've got to stick with i do believe that somebody knows something somebody knows where he is and i just have to pray that one day that will all come into fruition i know because i read it all the time that men go missing and a lot of the time it's because they can't deal with their lives and what's going on so since day one uh, journalist david dunning in yorkshire has been following this story ever since rory went missing and uh, david joins me now david tell us a bit about rory who was he and, and the fascination with this story for you good morning Good morning to you. Yes, indeed. I mean, I, I obviously first reported that the first time that he was reported missing. So if we go back to November 2015, the 19th, Rory was 29 then. He was having a night out in York. It was a city. It is a city that he loves and knows very well. He was staying at the Travel Lodge in the Piccadilly area of York. His friend last saw him when he left the hotel at about 12.15 a.m., so into the 20th of November. Mm. He was pictured on CCTV cameras at about 12.39. Eight minutes later, there was another sighting in the City Mills area. And after that, he simply vanished without a trace. So nobody knows what happened after that. I mean, what we do know is that the river was in flood at mm. the time. So obviously, the level was much higher than normal. I think, you know, basically, the police think that it's very credible that he unfortunately sadly fell into the river and was swept away his family take a different view though um, and and they cling to the hope that actually what happened was rory chose to disappear that night now you've become quite friendly with his family particularly his mom over the years through talking to her and indeed interviewing her every year we've heard a clip of that uh, of your most recent one what's her belief well, uh, Liz, uh, who lives in Lytham, St Anne's near the uh, English resort of uh, Blackpool, uh, does firmly feel that Rory is alive. They had a special bond. When Rory lived in Skipton, uh, where he worked, uh, Liz says that Rory was over every five minutes uh, to the Blackpool area to see her. Uh, they had a very good relationship. She says it's a mother's in- intuition. She just feels that something was wrong, something she didn't know about. Mm. And uh, she has that feeling that Rory is still with us somewhere. Has she told you about how he was, how his demeanour was in the run-up to his disappearance? Yeah, we've talked at length about that. Um, the first interview that I ever did with her uh, went into into that kind of detail. She's not aware of any problems that uh, Rory had. She's not aware of any reason to disappear. But... You know, because of the fact that seven years on, uh, Rory hasn't been found, I think that adds fuel to the idea that he could have disappeared that night Mm. of his own free will. You see, the thing about... Uh, We have lost a lot of young people in York, in our rivers, and eventually we have found evidence of what happened to them. Mm. Uh, There is a a lock just a few miles outside the city where the river turns from fresh water to tidal, and um, it's not easy for uh, to get past that. So I I think that the the feeling is that because no evidence of Rory's death has been found, um, the idea that he is still alive somewhere has some credibility. No, I'm 
looking at him in a picture of one of our local newspapers here, the Southern Star. How does a Cork connection come into play? Right. Well, uh, Rory's cousin uh, has worked in the West Cork area. Uh, forgive me, it's uh, not a, a part of your beautiful country that I'm familiar with, but I understand that, you know, you have a, a, a fairly large city in Cork itself, but to the West, things are more rural. Yeah. And I would imagine they're very like Cornwall, for instance, which is an area of England that I know very well, and an area uh, where people don't ask too many questions. Uh, there are a lot of people there who are looking for a different uh, style of life, I understand. And um, Rory would have known about that area through his cousin. Um, his cousin uh, would have talked uh, very openly about what a beautiful place it is, um, you know, how remote it is, mm. perhaps how like parts of Cumbria, just to the north of Lancashire, it is. So he would have probably had a very good idea. And, and Liz and, and the family think, well... Uh, wouldn't you know if you if you knew about Cork, would it not be a very good place to go and install yourself mm. and hope that uh, you weren't found? Basically, that is the idea. You're certainly right. It is a part of the world where yes, there'd be a couple of very decent sized towns, but in between vast rural swathes, where if a person did want it to stay under the radar, they most certainly could. There's no evidence that he is. There, there's no evidence that he no, ever went there. Is, there is no evidence, no. Just a, just a feeling that, you know, as, as a place to disappear, as a place to go and deal with your emotional issues or whatever might be wrong, that's somewhere that Rory would have known a lot about. So I think the family's basically, the, the, the family's saying, OK, well, let's raise the, the question, basically, and see what comes back from it they desperately desperately want to hear from rory if he is alive and if he is living a quiet life even if it's just a message to say he's okay you know um they would they they they, they would desperately just like to hear from him or anybody who thinks you know yeah there may be credibility in that connection it is so difficult for them so difficult for liz and for doug his father um, his mum and dad are not together anymore. His father lives in Spain, but they are united together. They they often come to York together on the anniversary yeah. to say, "Where's Rory?" You know, and uh, and they will look at any credible idea about where he may be. Sure. Um, you know, and, and and let's face it, the police investigation is still open as well. Although the police think that he went into the river. They don't know any more than you and I do. Uh, so therefore, you know, the investigation remains open. Yeah. North Yorkshire Police is the force in England who would like to know if anybody has any information. And they still have a file open. They haven't given up on him, so to speak. No. Have you spoken to them recently, David? Yeah, they never give up on missing people. Um, people uh, in Ireland might be aware of the Claudia Lawrence case, the missing chef from York mm. who, who vanished. Uh, the police have not given up on that, but they are faced with, you know, the idea that he was down by the river and the fact that nothing has been heard of him since. So obviously the case just sits there. And if anybody comes up with any information, then they're interested to hear. Mm. Now, Rory's photograph, as I said, in the Southern Star has a good circulation, has a widespread readership. He's a good looking young chap. Uh, he might be noticed around. 
Yeah, uh, yes, and, and I think the other thing is that he's a, he's a nice guy as well. You know, he gets on with people. He loves to have a laugh, and um, he, he would probably be noticeable, I think, after a bit of publicity like this. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, some people go missing for good reasons. Yeah. And it's it, it should be, you know, um, it should be tackled tactfully, shall we say. Yeah. You know? If it is a thing, and these things do happen, David, if it is a thing that he is listening, or that someone who knows him or has met him is listening, is there something that, on behalf of his family, you'd like to convey? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's so sad. I mean, I I do get quite emotional about it now, seven years on, after, you know, getting to know Liz so well. It is so sad to see the impact that this has had on her and on his dad, Doug, as well. They both genuinely understand that if it is true that Rory is still alive and has had to go away for some reason, they understand you know, they've always said, come back, contact us. You won't be in trouble. We won't be cross with you or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, for the first time ever in an interview, um, Liz said to me this year that she is now having to make some effort to get on with her life. Um, she's been going out more, she said. But, you know, I look in her eyes. Uh, the woman's devastated. So is his dad. So is everybody that know him. So if Rory was listening some kind of message would be very helpful but you know they both understand they told me over and over again they both understand that there may be reasons but if there's any way that he could indicate that he's okay uh, that would be very helpful for them and they could go from there David, you never know what Cork can turn up. When we go looking around, you'll never know what, what our people can find. Thank you for talking to me today. You're welcome. Cheers. David, David Dunning speaking to me from Yorkshire. We have a picture of Rory up on our Twitter now, at OpinionLine96. Good looking young chap. Picture comes from the Southern Star. There is absolutely no evidence he ever came here. There's absolutely no evidence that he is here. It's just that his family are desperate. And can you imagine being a mom or a dad of a young man or a young woman who just goes missing without a trace on a night out with his friends just without a trace vanishes into thin air never to be seen again you have no evidence that he ever came to a particular part of the world you just have intuition mother's parents intuition that he is still alive so that's why we wanted to talk to, to David Dunning it, it may come to nothing but just in case just in case. 0818 96 96 96. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96 FM. Hi, it's Elmery. Join myself and Connor every Sunday morning to find out what's happening in the arts all over Cork. There's so much happening. Fantastic festivals with great events for all ages. And we'll tell you all about them. The Arts House. Sunday mornings, 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes. Planted, picked and produced in Cork. Griffin's Potatoes. The great taste of home. Cork. 96 FM. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. 96 FM. The more I think about that chat with David Dunning, the more I wonder what if 
Just what if, by some crazy twist of fate, Rory happened to be in, in West Cork? Highly, highly unlikely. You, you get that from talking to David, but you never know in these things. You never truly know. 0818 96 96 96, the number of the text to WhatsApp, 083 396 96 96. Now, this message has been sent out to media and TDs across Cork City and County. I'm writing this as a lifelong friend to a family that's in turmoil. They've consented for me to share the story. The youngest in a family of six has diagnosed with schizophrenia for over the last 10 years. She's been in and out of the CUH psychiatric ward and she has been under numerous different teams and is on copious amounts of medication. But her condition is just worsening. In the summer of this year, after being released from the hospital, she threw herself from the fourth floor of a building in order to end her suffering. Now, that's a desperately, desperately upsetting start to a message. And I may tell you, it doesn't get any easier to read. Louise, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. It's a very upsetting email and a very upsetting story. Uh, you're a family friend. It is. Yeah, I would. I'd know, I'd know all the family. There are six children in the family. I'd know them all very well for 20 years plus. Yeah. Whoop. So really the reason why I contacted the station and the TDs, as you said, is that the family need help. Their sister, she's in her 30s. She's schizophrenic. She has literally been turned away from treatment as of kind of the last maybe four or five months. The instance there you're talking about happened in July. She had been arrested actually because of her illness. Her protocol would be to get her, um, I don't know what the appropriate terminology is, I'm going to say sectioned or signed in involuntary, would be to be arrested and taken up to the CUH. So in this instance in July, I think it was the 9th of July, she was arrested from her family home because of the behaviours that were going on and was brought to the the guard station. A doctor on call was was a letter was given from the doctor on call to sign her in to the CUH. And when she got there, the next of kin was contacted saying she'll be in for 48 hours. You know, she won't be seeing a psychiatrist until the Monday morning. So she'll be on observation for 48 hours. And then two hours later, she was released and then tried to take her own life. Yeah. Now, yeah. she fell. She, she, she threw herself off of a building, fell. And being honest, fell in the arms of an angel. Somebody lowered her down because the fact that she's alive to tell the tale is yeah. unbelievable. You know, she didn't have a spine injury. She didn't have a head injury. She has had, I think, four surgeries and is back to the best that she will be. Sure. But is like, the, the phone call from the COH... Sorry to cut across. Sorry, the phone call from the COH was that she would not be released. I mean, she was brought in by the guards and signed in by a doctor. Yeah. And yeah. they just, because she'd been under their care for the last maybe, I think it's about 12 years, coming on 12 years, they see her as problematic and they just don't want to deal with her anymore. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe like it's the family have been told this is behaviour. Could that be the case, Louise, you know? It, it, pro- it probably is a little bit of that. Like, it probably is, you know, but like, schizophrenia is a registered illness. She doesn't have control. 
Yeah. Does she have moments like it, of lucidity where she knows what's going on around her? She does. Her? She does. She does. But those have moments... Have you spoken to her in those times? Or, or what I have, did she say? I have. I have. I mean, she is... Like, the medication, I don't know if you know anything about um, the type of medication that somebody with an illness like that had on. The medita- medication really takes control. You know, like, you would be extremely drowsy on it. You would gain weight. You would be drooling. You would be extremely tired. Like, the medication is so strong that it would take over your life. Yes, yes. And then and this that's girl in particular... that's not an easy way to then, live either. It's not, it's not. And then you see what happens is she gets a bit better and thinks she's fine and then the medication might be, become every second day or she might miss a tablet and then they're back to square one. I see. But that's all part of the illness. Sure. Like it's the illness and telling her, you're fine, you don't need this, you're fine. Sure. And does she want to be in hospital, Louise? Like when, when she has these lucid I, I moments? Think, I think, I think, yes, I think she knows, like she definitely knows, okay, I'm in trouble here. So she's aware of her situation. She is like she has tried like up until last Thursday she was in in A&E with her father trying to get her admitted and she was there like I I need to come in and they are saying this is a behaviour we can do no more for you off you go yeah that form of words like I would in, sincerely in, in, hope in wasn't the, used but yeah the the, the, the word behaviour was used that it, that it's behaviour they were told that yeah. like I'm I'm speaking to you today my next protocol is HICWA because this is negligence on the HSE's part. Like, this girl has already been a danger to herself. Schizophrenia is is a registered illness. She, yeah. she does not have capacity yeah, d- when she's manic. And if anything yeah. happened, who's yeah, actually liable? I, I think accusations of negligence are probably best not thrown about. Let, 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 let's see what someone would say okay. about it. But at, at, at the same time, clearly she wants to be in. She feels she needs to be in. And something is stopping them from admitting her. That's that's not a question to which I have an answer here, but it certainly is a very distressing one. But but but, but that's that's kind of why I'm on the phone, yeah. As in, we we want an answer, and if somebody, one of your listeners, can tell us, okay, this service is better, we don't actually know. Like yeah. she has tried to go to another hospital, and what was said was, your team are in the CUH, you're under a certain psychiatrist. You know, yeah. we can't take over as such. You know, your yeah. your ten years and twelve years of history are X, Y, and Z. So you go to that person who now doesn't want anything to do with her anymore. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, and like, I know earlier, I use, is, I use is, the is, word negligence there, but what I mean by that is that one doctor is signing her in and another is saying bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. She's asking to be brought in. She's she's pleading to be brought in. She is. And for some reason... And the reason, family are pleading for help. I mean, she's in her 30s. They, she has huge potential to be a danger to herself, as she's proven, and a danger to others. Yes. Like, she wants the help. We want the help for her. Yes. Yes. And, and your reason you know, for like reaching out to media and, and politicians would be what? It's because the last couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks, her, her um, episodes have escalated a little, a little bit. And normally when this happens, she is brought in. She is given treatment. The treatment could last anything between three months up until nine months. She would yes. be in-house 
we say she would be in a psychiatric unit. Her medication are controlled. Like she is an adult in her 30s. It's hard to, to uh, a sibling or a parent. They are taking responsibility and saying, here you go. Here's your tablet at nine o'clock in the morning. And mm. they're not they're not there all day to see if she's spitting them out again. Although she's saying she's taking them, who knows? Whereas in the yeah. hospital, she's under 24 hour care. The tablets are regulated like the tablets are the key. Yeah. Yeah. And I you guess know, it's super, fair to say. Supervision is the key. Yeah, I guess it's fair to say that, look, whatever is going on with this misfortunate individual, it may not suit a certain facility, but you believe, and I think the family believe too, Louise, there should be somewhere. You can't just say, I'm sorry, there's no more we can do for you. you. Goodbye. You can't just say that. No, there has to be something. Like with adults or children with intellectual disability, there is places. There is, seems to be nowhere in Cork, we haven't gone further afield, for adults with um, psychiatric illnesses. Yeah, yeah. You see, they'll say as you know, well, like I she, guess, she knew, take your medication and everything and will be fine, you know? I know, and that's fine if it was me to say, okay, you need to take, you know, paracetamol because you have a headache, so you have to take it, or you need to take your antibiotic because I've yeah. an infection. But when when you have an illness that is working against you constantly, like, yeah. I don't know if you know anything about schizophrenia, there is something else nothing, there saying, you, know, you don't need this. Nothing. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. as in, there's two people there. One person saying you look great today, and the other person saying you look terrible. You know, it's constantly a battle. And yeah. like one, on one hand, she'd been told by herself, "Take your medication; it'll help you." And the other voice saying, "You don't need them at all. Look how they make you. They make you tired. They make you drowsy. You can't do this. Yeah. You can't do that." Like it's it, a constant it's a demon within, within you. herself. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's what it is. Yeah. And like her life is no walk in the park. It is hard work for her. Mm. So without you know, identifying and like her, family her members, where is she now, Louise? Where is she at? at she's with her father now. She's with her father, and that is not an easy task for him either. Mm. Yeah. Do they have a good relationship? You know, they do. They do. She has a supportive family, but they're all adults with small children. Yes. Yes. And lives and jobs and husbands and wives. Yes. You know. And, uh, yes. It, it's so upsetting because like the, ju- the July the July incident has really escalated what happened in July like she was in the CUH then obviously on a general ward for a while because she had had so many surgeries needing to be done um, yes. and then since being released which I think was September to the end of October I think it was the end of October actually since then now the behaviour has escalated the episodes have you know they're increasing She's definitely been in the CUH A&E. So the protocol seems to be bring, be brought to A&E and then be transferred over to the psychiatric unit, which yeah. to me doesn't make sense in, its, in itself. You know, there should be like a triage in the psychiatric ward. Yeah. Like it is a separate hospital now. It's not just a ward. It's a separate hospital in the yeah. CUH. There should be a triage you know yourself, there. Louise, that, that's a, a symptom of the ongoing issue. I know, Everything I know, Shirley, come here. I'm, I'm solving Everything. problems. <laughs> yeah. I, know, um, I know. And I get that. We were talking a while ago about these lucid moments that she has when she she's yeah. self-aware, as it were. Yeah. Like, what does she say she wants? What does she, if you say to her, look, and I don't know what her, her name back. is, I don't want. This, this, this girl, this girl is 33. This girl had a normal, for the want of another word, a normal life till she was 23. I know mm. her since she was eight. Mm. You know, a relationship, a job, 
like plenty of hobbies. All of that was taken away from her overnight. Wow. And, and like the scary thing about May I ask a question, Has anyone sat down with her to analyse what changed? Oh, see, that's the thing. So, like, I'm 34. I have three three children. They're all under the age of 15. They are... Anybody can have the schizophrenia gene. Anybody. And it's between 18 and 25 that it becomes prevalent. Now, some people can be unlucky and it can come earlier, but it's normally, normally now, I think it's like 3% of the population that have schizophrenia can develop it after 25, but it's normally within 18 and 25. And this girl was bang on 23. I see. I see. And like, I remember when it started, you know, like they didn't know like the night the first night that she went into A&E it was very religious believe it or not you know see Holy God and Mary and all this and people just thought it was drink it was actually it was actually like over the Christmas period and they thought it was drink and then the hospital thought it was drugs which it wasn't and never was like that would be common in people to have a psychosis if there was drugs involved absolutely zero with this girl yeah like no actual reason just had the gene and something triggered it yeah which it, is the sad so part de- of it all when it's desperate it's desperate you, you can't yeah. and the, I, I think what you're saying is Louise look no disrespect to anybody out in COH you can't just and I'm not accusing them of it I don't know whether you are either you can't just wash your hands of someone like this you have to I do something for uh, like, her that's it. Like, as in, and if they can't, fine. Tell us who can. Yes. yes. You know, you cannot just say after giving somebody 12 years of treatment, bye bye. Good luck. We've done what we can for you. Yeah. Like, her, in, like her, her medication is her biggest enemy, in my opinion. You know, she isn't fantastic at taking it. She might take it for three months and be great, and then the side effects kick in, or the head kicks in and says, you don't need them. Whatever happens, yeah. I don't know. But she does stop taking them. It's ongoing for 10 years of her relapsing from missing her medication and hiding them and all that. But that's all part of the illness. It's not yeah. like a bold child not doing what she's told. She doesn't have control. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's it's the a part. case of, yeah, the take, not, take the meds, take the meds and you'll be all right. But but then it's not really all right, Somebody's is it? telling you not, that, that's it. Because you're being told by yourself you don't need them and don't take them. Yeah. And like when she's really good, she does know the medication, like they cause terrible side effects. They're extremely strong antipsychotic medication. Yes. Like they're terrible. I wouldn't want to be on them myself. You know, yeah. they're terrible. You know, really, really disheartening um, side effects. Drooling while speaking, you know, sleeping up all up all night, asleep all day. Terrible side effects. And like, and has anyone ever fought. said, Louise, has anyone ever said, has she ever said to her medical team, look, I, I know I need the meds, but look what it does to me. Is there any easier way? There's not. There's actually not like the, to be fair to the hospital. They have tried, like I said in my email that I sent you, like she's been on copious amounts of medication. They have tried an awful lot of different variations and combinations because she has such strong breakthrough. Um, like I think the technical diagnosis is paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, do you know what I'm like, going to do, Louise? I'm, I'm I'm going to I'm going to leave it there um, because. Okay. 
what I'm what I'm hoping is that having listened to our conversation, I know there's another family out there with whom this will resonate. What I'm just hoping yeah. is that some family has been where you are and has managed to get to the next step. I don't think anybody I don't think want. anybody wants your friend I don't think anybody wants your friend to just walk away into the wilderness and have her her medication or her condition take or take her but over. You know what? I don't think anybody wants that. Is, is that. Where is she going to walk to? That's what we're go. worried about. Like what what's the end game here? We I don't know. know and that's the problem. Okay. Louise, if anybody is listening who has been where you are or where this misfortunate person is, uh, they can come to us and we'll see where it goes. All right? Great. Thanks very much. No, thank you, Louise. And, and please, when she is lucid and well, please tell her that I'm thinking about her. I will, of course. Thank you. Thanks, Louise. God, that's so sad. That's so, so, so sad. Like, you get to a point where the people who've been treating you for years have said, but there's no more we can do. That's all right for you, but what do we do now? What do we do where are now? 0818 96 96 96. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96 FM. Cork Diary is a free service. So if you're a community group, a not-for-profit organisation, or you have a fundraising event you would like mentioned, let us know and we'll tell Cork all about it. Email the details to corkdiary at 96fm.ie. The Cork Diary. With corksimon.ie. Because everyone who calls Cork home should have one. Cork's 96 FM. Join the conversation. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96 FM. Yeah. Do you see that story up the country overnight? Um, the State of the Health Service. Maybe, maybe that's why someone did it. Somebody walked up to two politicians, a Minister of State, Anne Rabbit, who's been on this programme. I think Kieran Cannon actually may also have been on the programme at some point over the years. But definitely Minister Rabbit has been on. They were at a, a public meeting and they had bags of excrement thrown at them. They've made a complaint to the Gardaí. It's not yet known whether it was human or animal. Not too sure it matters, really, to be fair. But um, is that where we are now? That you walk up to someone at a public meeting and throw a bag of poo at them? 0818 96 96 96. Lisa, you're listening to uh, Louise. Terribly distressing. Good morning. I'm devastated for her because I feel like her meds need to be assessed weekly, not just, you know, every now and then. Because when you take this medication, the side side effects for women, speaking from a woman's perspective, are horrific. I mean, no woman wants to feel fat or lose their body, you know, can't control your body in public. So you have the humiliation on top of the mental sickness. And it's just a disgrace. But the reason why it's happening is they just don't have the staff. That's the simple answer. And and nobody will take responsibility for her because she has already tried to take her own life. And if she dies, the blame will be put on that specific doctor, nurse, etc. So, I mean, there'll be nothing done about what happened previous to it. Yeah. And it just makes me sick. I mean, no woman, even a healthy woman, could handle that. 
in my opinion. What I get from listening to Louise and from reading her, her lengthy email is where we appear to be is that the system, such as it is, and I use that as a broad term, an umbrella term, the system is saying we've done everything that we can do for you. Well, that's a broken system then, because if we have unhealthy people in Ireland, it's our healthcare's responsibility to help them, no matter the cost, no matter how long it takes. Mm. And the problem is, and this is what I'm trying to stress, is someone will be held responsible if anything happens to her. And that's why they're all running away. Yeah. And this is why they won't help her or her family. And it's disgusting. I mean, no one can take the blame for whatever happens because of, you know, her mental health state. All they should do is put all their energy into fixing her and giving her the proper medications. Because PJ, you can go down five milligrams of those medications and you can go from perfectly fine to insane in two minutes flat. And that's a fact. So... it also sounds from talking to Louise, Elisa, that it's not a nice way to live. No, taking I mean, all these meds. No, and again, I'm speaking as a woman. I mean, women, we 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 all take pride in our appearance. None of us want to look as bad as we feel. And this girl has no control over the things like her weight, you know, her body functions. I mean, that in itself is is mentally disturbing, you know, on top of everything else. And I just wish for, like, five minutes they would realise the impact this medication has on people mentally also, that you cannot drop even a milligram. You're dope sick, you know? It's too dangerous, and she needs proper care. There's a term that... (laughs) and. It was the title of one of the most frightening television programmes I ever watched in my life. But this is how life. she feels. This is what happens. This is why I'm so angry. So, I Lisa, mean, what you're saying here is, what you think is she is, yes, she's sick because of her sickness, but she's also sick because of her meds, and she needs someone to sit with her and say, okay, we know your sickness is serious. We know that the meds aren't aren't working with you. Let's see what we can do. Let's. She needs someone to take her to that next step. She absolutely does. And the only way to do that is weekly visits and daily dope tests to make sure that she's not dope. You know, medication tests, I don't want to make out like she has a drug problem. It's not her fault. But you can be yes. addicted to legal drugs and coming off them can be detrimental to you. And nobody yes. wants to take the blame for that. Yes. And that's what's um, happening. And is it a strict, Lisa? And I sense, I sense you may be coming from some personal experience. I don't oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yes, one hundred percent. And, and, and I know the much. healthcare system inside out, and I know exactly okay. how that family feels okay. when you actually and put someone's life in their hands and they tell you, "No, take them home." I mean, who does that? And, I mean, and when you have a, a medication regime, Lisa, and I'm going to really simplify this one now. So if the medication regime says you need to take the orange one at 9 o'clock and you need to take the green one at 10 o'clock, even reversing them can cause you problems. Absolutely. Look, if, you, if anyone has ever been under duress and they took some Xanax from the doctor for a yeah. couple of weeks and then they stopped, talk to them about the back pain, the leg pain. No matter what you take, there's a withdrawal period. Yeah. And it's severe. 
So this girl is literally going through severe withdrawal periods constantly on top of everything else. She's in a horrible place. I, I, and my heart no, goes out to her. No one wants to deal with her because if anything happens to her because she has tried to take her own life, they'll get the blame. But that shouldn't right. be the case. There should be a team that, that can actually say we've done all we could for her, you know, but we don't yeah. even have that here, which makes me just is, crazy. Is it a fair comparison to say, Lisa, uh, and this sounds awful, but is it a fair comparison to say we wouldn't stop treating somebody for their cancer because the cancer was out of control? Yeah, but they would have the choice because mentally they would be sound. This Fair is point. why she's so vulnerable, you know. Fair point. Mentally, Fair point. she's not sound, so they're taking advantage of it. Like, I'm sorry okay. that they are. All right, Lisa, and this I'll is leave why it the there. Family can't win. And send there, my love I... to that family. Thank you. Thank you. You've done that yourself. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining that conversation, and you bring personal insight as well. Michael, morning. Uh, Michael. Hi, PJ. Hi. You yourself also spent time in psychiatric care, so... I did. I did, and I was in CUH as well. Um, and I, I, I suppose one thing about, about psychiatric um, care, and well, what I found in the CUH is that when you're in there, you kind of don't want to leave. Um, you feel very secure there. You feel people are looking after you, um, even when it comes to your, your medication um, I, I used to get mine twice a day um, and you have to take it in front of a nurse um, so you know there's even certain controls taken away from you which is good um, I, I suppose the thing is, is is that they can only do so much and what happens is you come to a point where and it's discussed with you where they suggest um, that you leave you know that you're, you're well enough to leave now I was put under um, the care then of uh, community um, psychiatric um, help. So I had, uh, I, I used to go to um, uh, a mental health nurse uh, once a week for a few months and then it stretched out to maybe uh, once a month um, and even still five years on, uh, it's once every three months I see somebody. Um, but I guess you got to do as hard and all as it is, and I found the hardest part is 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 when I left hospital, and and even still, I, I suppose, is the work you have to do yourself. Um, that's the hardest part because sometimes your your brain will tell you you're much better than bother taking your tablets. Um, but fortunately, every time I've managed to to kind of get over get over that one. Now there was a stage I remember a couple of years ago where. where I thought I had more than I actually had, uh, and I, I had to space them out a little bit, um, yeah. and I felt the effects of that. Is it, Michael, that the illness itself is a bit of a tyrant? Oh, the, so it's, it's, it's a disaster, um, PJ. It's, it's so hard to explain um, to people. I mean, what, what you have, and that poor lady, I mean, she's probably telling herself she's useless and, and nobody cares about her, and now she feels as well in the hospital that they don't care about her. And that must be horrendous. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that isn't the case in the hospital. I really do. I mean, I, I, I just have this. Uh, unfortunately, they can only do so much. Other than keeping that lady in hospital forever, 
Which, which in a way, Michael, sounds like she's pleading to it be does. taken in and kept in. But that's institutionalisation, and, and we, that doesn't work. We, we used to do that. We don't do it yeah. anymore. Yeah, and rightly so. And rightly so. No, I'm not blaming the lady in any shape or form. That's all part of her illness. Yes. It's, you know, it's a, her illness probably tells her, stop taking your tablets. Um, but you'd wonder, now, <laughs> like I would have been... I would have been very surprised if she doesn't get community care. But, mm. but I mean, I know as well when you're not well, well, you tell yourself certain things, but you also tell other people certain things. Mm. And they might make sense in your head, but it mightn't actually be the way things are, if that makes sense. Do you me. become skilled at all, Michael? Or does your demon within, because that's what it is, do you become skilled at all at telling people around you what they want to hear? Absolutely. PJ, I, I, I had a mental breakdown and nobody knew, nobody knew I was feeling like that. Nobody. Yeah. Um, yeah. I kept it from everybody. I was, I was like living two lives, you know, as soon as I got in, in the door at home, um, I felt safe and I just pretended everything was fine. And, you know, I just battled it. And again, I don't have schizophrenia, but I just battled it and battled it and battled and it. And that was part it. of the insidious nature of your illness? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just hide everything. Well, I did. I just hid everything, you know. It's what, what would you say to, to Louise and to the family, reaching out as someone who, as I guess, Michael, knows it like no other? What would you say? It's such a difficult situation, um, PJ, because, I mean, your, your initial thing to say is, is get yourself up to, up to CUH. But then if she's saying that they're turning her away, that's such a difficult situation. And I see you don't know whether that lady is on her meds now, whether she's taking her meds. So you don't know what her frame of, of mind is. I mean, she clearly sounds like she does need uh, hospital intervention. Um, but again, if, if, you know, if, 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 if somebody is discharged for, from hospital and they're, they're doing well and they're back in again three months later and, you know, they're not taking their meds, mm. you know, you know it, it just becomes a vicious cycle, doesn't it? For everybody, I'm saying. That's for exactly everybody. what it sounds like. That's exactly you know, what it sounds like. It's, it's such a difficult situation. Um, I mean, unless the girl, unless the lady can go even privately to a psychiatrist, um, which isn't always the case, but unless you could go privately to a psychiatrist, I mean, it yeah. sounds like even the likes of counselling is, is is not even a, you know. I mean, this lady needs medical intervention. Yeah, uh, I don't yeah. think even talk, talk talk therapy would do anything. Yeah, and we don't we don't institutionalise people anymore. There there no. was in Ireland, and I don't think anybody ever wants to go back there, Michael. There was an Ireland where. She could go in a big door yeah. and never be seen again. Yeah, out in our ladies or St. Anne's out in the straight road. And that's, the that's, road. No, that's no life for anybody. No, of course. Of course not. I mean, I, I guess what the lady needs is, is, is to get her, her meds balanced and then community care. And, and the community care, now I don't, obviously we don't know where the lady lives, but community care works. I mean, that can be once a day. That could be a phone call from, from a nurse because I know people um, who've gone through that as well and they used to get a phone call once a day for a few weeks. And like, Michael, was, I don't have a whole pile of time left but, but I would like to ask you one question. Like, and yeah, I, of I, course. I, I assume you are well now day to day and I'm glad that you are but if you have a day where you feel unwell, what mm. do you do? 
if you, I suppose I'm much uh, further down the road and, and I do things like um, mindfulness and, and small bit of meditation and stuff, breathing exercises and I just find those very good. You know, they can just balance me out a little bit um, because I am on meds. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, while I am on meds, I mean, all meds really do for me is just bring me up to a point where I know what I need to do for myself. I understand. I understand. Michael, thank you so much for your call uh, and your insight. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here like a go on a stick. I don't really know anything about being in, in a life like this, but that's the beauty of a conversation that anyone can join in. And you can join too at 0818 96 96 96. We have got something special for you to start off 2023. The cost of living, as we know, is gone out the door. Everything is going up. Nothing seems to be coming down except the rain. But for one loyal listener, we intend to sort that out. We're going to sort it. To kick off the new year, we'll cut the cost of living. Live Free in 23 is coming very soon. The details will be revealed Monday morning at 8.15 with Casey and Ross on Cork's 96FM. Now, whatever you think this is, it's better. This is astonishing. I can't tell you anything. I'd be shot with a shovel and buried with a gun if I told you anything. It's up to the lads to tell you the lot, and they will. Live free in 23. Coming with Casey and Ross this Monday at 8.15, only on Cork's 96 FM. 0818 96 96 96. Thank you for listening across the year. Here's one of our highlights. My wife bought a dash cam for our car. I didn't know it recorded the sound in the car. She now has lots of recordings of me pretending to be interviewed by Sky Sports as manager of my FIFA team while driving to work. (laughs) I'm a bus driver. If I'm having a bad day at work, I look in the mirror while driving and mutter to myself, you're all Muppets, aren't you? And then tap the brakes twice so they all nod. Casey and Ross in the morning. Back Monday, January 9th. You can now order your 231 electric Skoda Enyaq from Noel DC Cars. Skoda sales dealer of the year. Exclusively Skoda in the city. Corks 96 FM. The minds are live. Hello. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.com. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Parks 96 FM. Yeah, big response to my conversation with Louise. Very distressing conversation about her friend who has a chronic form of schizophrenia and is just so, so unwell, so, so sick, so, so desperate for help. Uh, and, And thank you to Michael and to Lisa, both of whom have a unique insight of their own into this. For their contribution. If you've anything to say, you can join that conversation or any conversation. 0818 96 96 96, the number, the text to WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Now, I don't think I've ever seen a health crisis in January as bad as this one. And I include the one in January 2021 because take your mind back two years from today, this is the 5th of January, take your mind back two years, and we were in the midst of the worst COVID surge of all the COVID surges we had, and every hospital in the country 
was like a battlefield, like a war zone. And we filled entire mornings here with horror stories from within and from without of, of what was going on there, what was going on in the UK. We spoke to Irish people across the UK. We thought we'd never go there again. Now we have this crisis that's upon us here in January of 2023. Yes, there's COVID involved, but there are other respiratory illnesses and other problems, and it's led to massive backlogs, shocking backlogs, right across our uh, health system. Now, to be fair, right across health systems, right across Europe. I went through a list yesterday of countries where they have a problem. Obviously, the UK seems to be in meltdown. France, Spain, Denmark, Sweden, Germany. They've all got their individual problems with their health systems at the moment. What do you do? And are we worse? And we had a Minister for Health yesterday morning or the night before was it saying well it's going to get worse before it gets better to which I'm kind of saying well how much worse can we expect it to get I listened to one doctor on national radio the other day saying in 30 years as a consultant he had never seen anything like this uh, 41 years ago Dr Chris Luke uh, graduated as a young medical student and went into with the title of his book, A Life in Trauma. Chris, good morning. Good morning, PJ. In all your years, have you ever seen what's in front of us now? I'm afraid I don't think I have. Uh, and I, I, I often thought that it was unbelievably bad, you know, and that's going back over 20 years. I mean, things have been very bad for 25 years. And as I keep saying... Um, you know, we had queues of ambulances outside emergency departments in the mid-90s. We had difficulties with people on trolleys or not finding trolleys in, in Ireland in the 80s. But even despite COVID, I think this is the worst we've ever, we've ever seen. And of course, the thing is, uh, PJ, as you're suggesting, the flu, the, the so-called triple-demic, is again, it's one of these famous straws you know, that, that broke the camel's back. We have a, an accumulation of problems uh, going on for at least 25 years, which has led us to the situation where we have fallen over uh, because of a, of a relatively small surge of, of cases of viral illness. Has it happened, Chris, or was it caused? And if it was caused, by whom or what? Well... You know, uh, I, I have to say that there, there is a fragility. There is a lack of resilience. There is, has been a lack of surge capacity that all reflects a, a want of intervention, a want of investment, a want of real, above all, attention being paid to the capacity of our emergency departments throughout these islands. And, you know, I, I often think that the, 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 the real issue is that the, the leaders in, in our hospital system, the, the, the leaders in our, in our health system and service nationally and politically, they don't spend enough time in the emergency department. And, I, you know, I put a piece in the, in the Irish Examiner today, and one of the small number of, uh, one tiny example of the, 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 the recipe I suggested was needed to fix the situation was for the chief executive officer of every single hospital with an emergency department uh, to spend uh, time in their emergency department every single day. 
and to lead the monitoring of the situation, to, to lead the assessment uh, the, the way a, a general or an admiral would do, uh, and to direct what I call the non-clinical. And so, you know, you can't expect a chief executive to come down and make medical decisions. No one's asking mm. him to do that. I'm simply saying that, you know, listening to that horror story of the last day or two of people spending days uh, on trolleys in the in, in Limerick, and dozens of people sharing one toilet, that enraged me because that it, it typifies, that illustrates that exemplifies one of the main reasons why emergency departments are so dysfunctional. Because we've got clinical staff, the nurses and the doctors, who are not only trying to see an overwhelming number of patients, but they're also being expected by the corporate you know, management uh, to, to fix the toilet, to fix the toilet floor to find uh, brushes and buckets, to find chairs, to find seats, to find water, to find sandwiches for patients who are starving. Uh, and it, 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 for me, the, the want of logistic support is a classic example of how dysfunctional we have allowed our emergency departments to be. So it has to be all hands on deck, PJ. It has to be yeah. all hands on deck, starting with the men and the women at the top of our uh, organisations coming down to the emergency department. And for as long as the emergency department in our hospitals is described by the people as being overwhelmed, the CEO and their team of every hospital should be in the department seeing for themselves what is required, whether it is a clean staff room or a clean staff toilet or a sandwich for the staff who haven't got time for a pee, never mind to sit down in the staff room, you know, so that there are ranks of people supporting the dwindling number of doctors and nurses. Because, it, it is, I mean, the, the, the final straw is when you can't have a pee, you can't have a tea, you've no time to stop, and then you're expected not only to do all the clinical. It, I mean, this clinical, this, this medical work is incredibly complicated now, uh, PJ, because, you know, medicine is so much more complex, it's so yeah. much more high-tech, and there are so many more elderly people with, a, 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 you know, a multiplicity of issues. That the days of nurses and doctors going off and, and, and doing the, the portering uh, and the catering and the stocks and the, you know the stocking of, of kids it's just not possible any longer. Yeah, two things that Minister Donnelly said in the last forty-eight hours. One was yesterday morning. I was aghast when I saw that press briefing he said it's going to get worse before it gets better and I'm thinking how much flipping worse can it possibly get and secondly he was talking about bringing consultants in at the weekends do consultants come in at the weekends did you in your time on the ground I know you're retired from actual practice now on uh, in the departments Chris but did you spend weekends in I mean PJ that is so insulting I, I cannot tell you how offensive I have spent uh, you know, upwards of 16, 20 hours every weekend for years in the ED and in, in CUH. And uh, CUH particularly because, as you know, the Mercy Hospital didn't deploy a consultant in emergency medicine uh, until 2022, as far as I can gather, and they're not even in place yet. So CUH has had a consultant in emergency medicine on the shop floor every single day of the year since the late 1990s. And for people to suggest otherwise is to lay bare 
the fact that they haven't been in, that these politicians or these commentators uh, or, you know, these pundits suggest that they have not themselves been in an emergency department uh, on a Christmas day or on an Easter day or an August bank holiday. So, you know, before you come out with this sort of stuff, I mean, it is utterly insulting. Uh, and, that, you know, even in our big emergency departments, consultants are there from very early, seven, uh, half seven, eight in the morning till eight, nine, ten p.m. at night in almost every big emergency department at this stage. Because most of them now have more than the, the two of us that were there in, in CUH in 2000. You know, now there's a, there's a dozen. So, like, there are, there are several consultants on the floor in every big department in our, in our country every day of the year. And, you know, and not, not to mention the fact that I'm in and out like a yo-yo at two in the morning, at three in the morning, at four in the morning for major call-outs. I mean, I don't know where they get this perception. It, it, it strikes me as a mixture of ignorance uh, and spiteful kind of uh, doctor passion. Uh, but it's, it's extraordinarily unhealthy. Hmm. We also have a, sh- a shortage of staff, as you know, Chris, and I've spoken to the, the nursing union people on the ground at, at CUH frequently, and the impression one gets from the doctors and the nurses, the impression one gets is you come out of college, you do your couple of years, and then you're on a plane, and there seems to be no way to stop that. Yeah, well, you know, I got into terrible trouble with all this, PJ. I, 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 you may remember I was director of postgraduate medical education at CUH for a long time and intern, I mean, I was responsible for the, the, the provisional year, the year of, of provisional driving by our, all our graduates from UCC. Um, and, you know, we did an enormous amount to improve their teaching. We had hands-on skills courses uh, in on the campus in UCC for the, the day or two before they started on the wards. We had all sorts of practical skills training. Uh, and then they had, you know, really very high quality two or three hours uh, a week, you know, given by consultants and, and senior registrars for, for that year. But then, unfortunately... I mean, I had a significant, I had a simple ulterior motive. You know, I wanted the doctors who got their license at the end of that intern year to then come on to the emergency department, you know, and yeah. by which time they'd be hugely experienced both in the hospital, they'd know their way around the hospital, they'd know people in the hospital, they'd know the culture in the hospital, and in addition, courtesy of the CUH intern teaching program, which I, I think is, remains of a very high quality, they would then be extremely well prepared to, get, to give our citizens uh, the very best of care in the ED at CUH and Cork and Bantry and Mallow. But sadly, over the last uh, 10, 15 years, uh, our graduates have headed straight for the airport. Uh, now, I have suggested over the years, I've tried to couch it in, in delicate you know, and sensitive uh, language, that I think that uh, it would be great, and I use the word great in commas, you know, as a euphemism, mm. it would be unbelievably valuable and helpful if our graduates spent six months or a year in our, in our system before heading off. And, you know, PJ, I am, as you say, I I qualified 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago now. Um, And in my time, in my generation, you know, almost every single Irish doctor went abroad in their third or fourth year. 
And yeah. as a result of that, they went through Boston, they went through London and Berlin and Sydney uh, and, you know, in, in, in a huge number of other centres of excellence. They did their training there and 90% of them then brought that training back to them. And that's yeah. how we have excellence in Crumlin and Temple Street uh, and CUH and St. James's. And that's how it works. And that's how it's worked for years. But this new thing is where they go abroad immediately, our doctors, uh, and they go to Australia or New Zealand for sometimes for a gap year, sometimes genuinely to start a career. But often it's locuming or it's travel or it's, or it's a gap year. And my argument as a, as a, as a pastoral educationalist, and as a clinician who had spent years desperately trying to recruit doctors for the Mercy and for CUH and for the South, you know, interviewing every second or third day anybody who might take a job. Um, my point, and I, and I traveled to Australia a couple of years ago to meet one of my great friends who runs one of the biggest emergency departments in Australia. And he, he confirmed my suspicion that the doctors going from Ireland now are, have no experience, little or no experience, the, the way they used to. And in the mm. olden days, you know, when, when people like me went in their third year postgraduately, you know, I went off to Edinburgh uh, after three years in the Irish system. And I can assure you, I did about 80, 90 hours a week, every week mm. for those two or three years before I arrived in the Royal Army of Edinburgh. And I was quickly promoted because I was uh, relatively advanced compared with the, the other graduates because I'd had so much experience which hands on uh, in, in Ireland. And that used to be the way it was. That used to be why Irish graduates were so welcome and so popular in mm. the UK and Australasia and America because they, they, they seem to be arrived with this incredible uh, amount of, of ability and competence but, and skill that they picked up when they were working. So, and now it's, it's all changed. And sadly, yeah. um, our doctors are leaving before they get, uh, they, they get to know people in, 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 in the country, before they get to know, navigate the system. And of course, then there's a vicious circle because if they come back then into general practice, there's a dane in Ireland that is there's, there's a risk that they don't understand the culture that they don't know how to navigate they don't know who they're, yeah. who they're dealing with on the other side and they can't make the phone call or they're not they're not quite so comfortable doing what would in the olden days many GPS would have done in terms of for example minor head injuries or minor wounds or sure. you know the ambulatory care Chris if I were in the position to give you the keys of a hospital say the one you spent so many years devoted to CUH if I gave you the keys of CUH today and said, Dr. Luke, it's all yours. Do what you can to sort out this mess. Where would you start? I would reorient the entire hospital to the front door uh, or to the back door, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, to the emergency system. And I would say, we have a crisis here that is easily as severe as the COVID pandemic in terms of healthcare. And in terms, I'm afraid to say, in terms of potential lives lost and, and disability, uh, the legacy, the legacy of disability and, and, and illness because of uh, uh, potential delays in treating and diagnosing people at the moment right around the country and right on both sides of the Irish Sea. And I say, right, we need to get into what was pandemic mode. Now it's polycrisis mode. We have a polycrisis because it's affecting so many parts of our system, the ambulances, the general practice community, 
uh, because of the dwindling population of GPs, uh, the, the number of, of paramedics who have been leaving in the last year or two because of the stress, uh, the fact that they're waiting for hours in the ambulances with their patients for hours outside the EDs because they can't get them into the... So I'd reorient the entire... I'd reconfigure the whole hospital system for the time being, for as long as the EDs were being overwhelmed and potentially lethally overwhelmed. And I would, I would make sure if I, was the, if I was the boss, I'd be in the emergency department every single day for at least 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, because, you know, and, and let's be realistic, an emer- a hospital the size of CUH is, is incredibly vast. It's got thousands and thousands of staff and hundreds of functions and activities. So it's a very, very complex organisation. But for the duration of this polycrisis, I'd be in the department in ED, in ED for, you know, half an hour. So I could see for myself what they needed. I would be absolutely on top of damaged or blocked toilets. I'd be absolutely on top of a want of trolleys or chairs or cleanliness in the staff room or sandwiches and tea and hot drinks for the staff at three in the morning. Uh, And I would do everything I could to make sure that even if there were no beds, uh, that patient, patients and staff were made as comfortable as possible in so many little ways in terms of the clean toilet, the clean car and, and the chair and so on. I, I would also do what I could uh, as a boss to secure even hotel accommodation if such a thing existed or to have contracts with local nursing homes mm. uh, because... Uh, you know, a significant sub- percentage of all our acute hospital beds, are, as you know, are taken up with, with elderly patients who have got over the initial medical treatment yeah. and who need uh, uh, step-down facilities, whether it be quasi-medical, you know, like a, an, a, an advanced nursing home or just hotel accommodation. And I would do what I could because that actually is one of the quickest wins, the quickest yeah. fixes. To Somebody find- said across the system, Chris, there's nearly 600 beds like that that, you know, you you can't throw a person out of the bed because they need some kind of care, but they actually could do without being in hospital. Yeah, and that's where, uh, if I was a minister, I would would do what I could to uh, make sure that the nursing home community, the nursing home staff, are paid far better than they are because it is not a, it's not good enough to pay nursing home staff uh, you know uh, the, the the minimum wage or just a little above that these people are looking after the most vulnerable aside from our neonatal wards and our children's hospitals these staff in our nursing homes are looking after the most vulnerable people and the most loved people in our in our population the elderly and the frail and they i mean to to pay them the minimum wage is to suggest that the population doesn't think a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more 
Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. That that care really is worth anything. So we need to pay people not just a living wage, but a wage that will attract, you know, people or retain people in, in that sector. Because without a really flourishing nursing home sector, this crisis, this polycrisis will continue ad infinitum until and unless we get nursing homes staffed adequately by well-paid and happy staff. Uh, we're not going to fix the, fix the problem. And the same goes to um, to general practitioners. They, we have to stop uh, laying on, you know, laying on, piling on the criticism. These, I, I know for a fact that all the GPs in our country are working flat out uh, mm-hmm. to deal with the surge in, 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 in workload. And they need, they need, as I heard just yesterday on the radio, GPs need access to scans uh, and imaging and outpatient clinics because without those uh, facilities, all they can do with somebody who has a flare-up of, of a long-term disease is to send them back into the ED because yes. the outpatient facilities are so restricted. Yes. Uh, and then, of yes. course, I, I would have um, the pharmacists uh, have more leeway in terms of prescribing of a, sm- a relatively small you know, formulary of, of medications and also little things like the ability to tweak a doctor's uh, prescription for a type of antibiotic or a type of painkiller, mm-hmm. if there's a shortage, as there often is, rather than sending people back, tracing back to their to their GP surgery mm-hmm. uh, and so on. So there's so many little ways we could tweak the system to improve it. Chris, the one thing I dread in the middle of this, and I'm sure you do too, and we've talked about it before, would be turning on my television news or opening my morning paper to see film of a ministerial visit to a sparkling clean ED with the only thing you can smell is paint and disinfectant and there isn't a trolley to be seen set up the usual run of the panto I dread seeing that I'm sure you do too well, you know, PJ, I took a picture of such a scene there about 10 years ago at CUH. Um, for months, we'd had chaos and difficulty and packed corridors. And then there was a ministerial visit or some other, you know, some other group of, you know, uh, dignitaries were visiting. And as you say, all the patients were decanted towards uh, the place that a SWAT team of cleaners defended. It was spick and span, smell of fresh paint, smell of almost the smell of bread being baked, you know? Uh, and again, a knife plunged into the heart of the staff and twisted because it demonstrated, as if anybody needed to know, that where there's a will, there's a way to clear the emergency department. And that is the kind of response that we need to see from our hospital leaders. And we, we because whenever they do it in that Stalinist fashion, you know, for, for the optics, for the, for the great minister, uh, as they would have done previously for the emperor or something, um, they are, as I say, stabbing the staff in, in the heart uh, with, with, with a knife of, of uh, disrespect uh, and, uh, you know, falsehood. It's a falsehood to have a, an emergency problem that's suddenly, mysteriously empty, uh, gl- you know, gleaming and smelling of fresh paint. It is a falsehood if it's going to be the, uh, back to the way it was the next day. Uh, and I can't tell you how upsetting 
and how likely to drive people out of the emergency room, as I know it has done, when you think that there's that level of, you know, f- falsehood uh, at the heart of the organisation of our, of, our, of, our, of our healthcare. Lastly and briefly, Chris, Mary Harney spoke about uh, an emergency when she was Minister for Health, and now we have Stephen Donnelly and uh, a cast of dozens in between, and it's still there. What's wrong? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wish there was a pat answer. I, I, I leave you with one, one, one suggestion. I saw there was a paper published from the States there in the last week or so suggesting that doctors make excellent hospital managers. I, I worked in Australia in 1988 and I was amazed and hugely surprised and impressed to realise that doctors could specialise in hospital management. They could do a master's in hospital management after graduating. And I was really impressed. And as far as I could see watching this since then, it is one of the main reasons why hospitals in Australia are so much better run. Uh, because they have clinicians at the very top. Clinicians meaning, clinical meaning bedside. People who have bedside experience and who can see uh, the overall organisation of a hospital through the eyes of the clinical staff, the bedside staff, as well as the laboratory staff and so many other uh, supporting professionals. Now, I'm not suggesting that every hospital needs to be run by a doctor, but I'm thinking that doctors uh, uh, and medical staff and nursing staff need much more impact, or clinicians need much more impact at the very, very top. Uh, and we need to stop having uh, dictates from on high by people who only see a gleaming, freshly painted emergency department when they visit a hospital. Right. Chris, always a pleasure to speak with you on the opinion line. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Chris Luke, consultant, emergency physician. His book is worth a read. Um, he brought it out last year, or was it the year before at this stage? A Life in Trauma. His story, but the story in many ways of how we are where we are. Thanks, Chris. 0818 96 96 96. Join the conversation. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cox 96 FM. Any thoughts on what Chris Luke has been telling us during the conversation? 0818 96 96 96. Another statistic... It's all over the place in your newspapers. We have fewer beds in the system now than we did in 1981, and that in itself is very, very telling. Fewer beds in our system than we did in 1981. 0818 96 96 96. We can come back to that and anything else you want. Donna, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Ashram, great. I've had a lot better start to my new year than you have by the sounds of things. What What happened? Um, so on New Year's Eve, um, about 20 past half of 12, our alarm started going off in our salon. Um, and myself and my business partner were actually at our friend's wedding in Rochester Park. And we have the alarm through our app on our phone. And the alarm started going off. And my business partner is actually seven months pregnant. So she was in bed at the time. Um, and she noticed the alarm was going off. So we contacted the guards and... Um, and they came to the premises and my business partner drove us over to the salon and as we were on the way then they gave us another call back to say we had been broken into our front window was smashed in. Yeah. Um, so This is and hair and coal in Riverstown, just to locate yeah. it for people. Yeah. 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 So how do Absolutely. you face into that? Nightmare. <laughs> just a nightmare. 
you'd never think it's going to happen to you. Do you know what I mean? It's just pure and utter development out of people. Like, I don't know, I just don't understand it, to be honest. I really don't. It just feels like you work so hard and this is the time that you get off people then, like, do you know? I'm looking at, at pictures here uh, of what damage was done. What did they do? They smashed our front window and they came in through the window then and they obviously must have cut themselves coming in the window because they left a blood trail um, and they went to our desk and they ripped out our tail and broke up a few things at the tail and stuff like that. Now, they didn't take any products or anything like that. They could have took a load of bunch of GHGs and got loads of money out of that, but they didn't. They didn't. The guard said they didn't know what they were doing, to be honest. It was just mm. pure other government, really. Did they get any cash? Was there any cash there? Small amount of cash, yeah. Small amount of cash. Um, but look, we don't leave too lot in the premises, especially over Christmas time and everything like that anyway as well, you know. Um, it was just more the devastation of pulling up and seeing your front window smashed in and your salon destroyed more than anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. Unfair when you work so hard, especially over Christmas and everything like that as well, do you know? And had and it been a good Christmas? Oh, yeah, we had a great Christmas. Jesus, yeah, our salon was booming and we have a great clientele and Jesus, our clients are absolutely fantastic to us. Like, they really are. Um, and our mm. staff and everything like that, they're amazing. Like, it's just yeah. unfair. Yeah. It's totally you opened unfair. in the middle of You opened in the middle of lockdown. I mean, in the this middle of lockdown, a... yeah. <laughs> yeah, we moved home from Australia and we were home a couple of months and that was our dream to do it, was to open a salon together. And we did it. We took a chance and we opened it and it's been working so well for us so far. We've worked really, really hard. Um, and it's been working amazing for us so far. It's just such a oh, heartbreaking when something like that happens. Like, it really is the consequences afterwards that you have to deal with that they'd have no idea. Do you know what I mean? It's just, Are you covered oh. for the damage that was done? Or would you just have to go about and sort it out of your own pocket? Um, we'll probably get covered for it, yeah. Yeah, we probably will get covered for it. Hopefully, anyway, we will. Um, our landlord is pre- pretty good to us as well. So, look they've offered to help out and stuff like that as well. Mm. Now, you're so, open, I take Yeah, you. we're open, yes, okay. yes. Okay. Um, we, had our, we had guys come down and repair the window and they put up in the perspex and stuff like that so yeah. that we could work because if they had boarded it up, we would have completely blacked out the salon. Um, yeah. So they, they made it work for us that we could open our business again on Tuesday, you know. Great. You'll be, you'll be busy so for the women's little Christmas, will you? Hopefully, yes. Yes, hopefully. They all come in for their blow drives and it's good it's on a Friday anyway. So people will be yeah. encouraged to go out a bit more as well, you know, and enjoy themselves. And we yeah. just have to try, get on with it now and just hopefully they'll get caught. Well, the guards are yeah. investigating this, obviously. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Have they told you, do they have any suspects? Do they There's know what they're dealing with? stuff like that inside as well. So they have people on cameras and stuff and look, oh, brilliant. they have the DNA from the blood and fingerprints and stuff like that as well. So it's in their hands. A couple of people came forward and gave us information as well that were like uh, passing by at the time it happened and they've been coming home from events and stuff like that. So they were Fantastic. nice enough to ring the salon and give us information as well. Good, good, yeah. good. So here's, here's good hoping that they... Too. Yeah, here's hoping that they'll get their, their collars felt very, very soon, yeah. whoever did this. Yeah. All right. Donna, take care of yourself and, and my best to everybody in Anne Heron Co.
Thank you very much. That's uh, that's Donna Kelleher. 0818969696. Your window put in and smashed. You're at a wedding. You've got to leave the wedding at 1 o'clock in the morning to go down and find your premises broken into. Look, they're, at least they're back at work. At least they're back at work. And if you're in the in the area, why not go down and support them as they try to be, rebuild uh, pop down and get the hair done for a little women's Christmas. 0818 uh, Yeah, they will be busy tomorrow. On the hospital's crisis, some comments that came in while we were talking to Chris Luke. What will happen next? I bet the government has no planning. The staff in the hospitals will get COVID and they won't be allowed into work. It's like happening at the height of the pandemic and we'll end up even more short staff. How will the head minister or officials see the real emergency when trolleys get moved to other areas in the hospital to make it all look sweet and happy? Sorry, but hospitals managers have a lot to answer for too. I'd like to say and add I am a staff member in CUH. The canteen is open all night. There's free tea and coffee for staff. Amazing service. It has to be acknowledged. Why is the matter private and the bonds not open to patients in A&E Saturday or Sunday? I mean, as a private patient, can I only get sick Monday to Friday? Yeah, and many, 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 many more coming in like that. Minded to you, Premier League Live on 96fm.ie takes a break this weekend coming. Returns on Saturday, January 11th, powered by TalkSport. Trevor Welsh back with all the action from the Premier League. Live games, big match interviews and much more. Premier League Live online with Harvey Norman, your home of the big screen. Returning Saturday week. I think I might have given you the wrong date there. Returns Saturday week. It's on the app and at 96fm.ie. Thank you for listening across the year. Here's one of our highlights. Morning, all lads and ladies. Don't know if you ever hear what people do when they win the 2K minutes, but today we're waking up in... And to say it's out of this world is an understatement. Thank you all so much. And that is from... Ellie and Ryan. And Mummy and Daddy. Bye. And Ross in the morning. Back Monday, January 9th. You can now order your 231 electric Skoda Enyaq from Noel DC Cars. Skoda Sales Dealer of the Year. Exclusively Skoda in the City. Join the conversation. Call us now. 0818-969696. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cox 96 FM. A lot of response to Dr. Chris Luke and particularly what he's saying about when they clean up the hospitals and they put people into sluice rooms and all you can smell is disinfectant and fresh paint and everything looks hunky-dory and how much it used to drive him mad and still does as a doctor and how much he thinks it's an insult to hard-working staff and indeed to the patients they're working with. There was a rumour, and I stress this, there was a rumour going around in the last 24, 48 hours that that was actually happening at Limerick Hospital uh, in response or in preparation for a visit by HICWA. HICWA then said they weren't visiting Limerick. That was in the Limerick Leader uh, news website last evening. So I don't know whether it actually did happen in Limerick, but there was certainly a rumour going around that, shall we say, a performance of the panto was at hand. And I don't mean... I don't mean the one in the everyman. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Now Anna, you're trying to buy a house and you've had an unfortunate experience. Morning. 
Hello, how are you? Sorry, I'm a bit Good. choked now, so I might go off in a coughing fit at any second. So just you, you and half the city, so you're all right. Drive on. Exactly, that's it. Um, so Wind yeah, that up a little bit more for um, me there, Wayne, will you please? Thanks. Go on, Hannah. Um, so basically, um, the beginning of um, last year, we went off and got um, approval in principle for a mortgage, and then they brought out um, the information about the shared equity scheme. So we were like, woohoo, you know, because it sounded great at the time, whatever. And um, we met a builder and um, a couple of friends and other people that we knew at the time um, had bought um, houses in this estate. So we met the builder and um, he showed us a show house and it was beautiful, of course, all show houses are. And... um, he was showing us photos of other houses that were expected to be built. And basically he kind of had like a five-year plan and it was all yeah. different phases, etc. So we agreed there and then on the type of house, the style of house, and um, that it was going to be <laughs> €400,000. Okay. So we had obviously like between the mortgage and the shared equity scheme, that was 30% and then savings and whatever we were expecting to get a mortgage of in and around 320. And mm-hmm. we were like, that's great. The rest of it will make up up to the 400,000. These are eye watering so, um, numbers anyway, Anna. Yeah. yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So anywho, um, fast forward, uh, I'm trying to think it was probably about six months later. And we got a text asking, you know, are you still interested? Um, you know, I have your deposit, but just double checking as, you know, the interest is high um, from other people, blah, blah, blah. So we were like, yeah, definitely drive on, you know, this is still very much of interest to us. So that was fine. But then I kind of got a bad feeling about it. And I was like, this is a bit weird that even though we had, you know, given a check um, picked the mm. house off the plans of where it was going to be, etc. So um, the beginning of this year, got a text again to say do you want to come and see exactly where the site is um and exactly where your house will be so we were like absolutely that's cool so we met him sorry anna you had paid over a deposit here had you yes Mm -hmm. okay okay and had you signed a contract and it was a bit of a wishy-washy contract it was a page saying like you know our names his name, how much the house is going to be, and that was it. It wasn't a, a an official document, I would probably right. say. Your solicitor so, wasn't involved at this point, no? Exactly, yeah. Right. So um, we went to the site, and he pointed out, like, oh, the foundations are going to be built in the next kind of week or two, et cetera, et cetera. And we were like, geez, yeah, that's great. And anyway brought us into another show house that was in the estate that had just been finished which would be very similar to the house we had agreed on starts showing us all around there and I was like hang on a minute we've already done this with you you know I said like we know what we've agreed to we kind of want to know dates and things like what's the story because it's been a year now since we paid the deposit and he said yeah actually that's something I just wanted to talk to you about today um, the house price over the cost of materials from the pandemic has gone up to 475 I hope that's okay what? Yeah. So we both nearly went into cardiac arrest on the spot. <laughs> and we were like... We like this isn't we room stopped. to improve where you can just ring the bank. Do you kind of say, well, yeah. where am I going to get another 475 Exactly. So we were kind of like, okay, 
right uh leave it with us and we basically just got in the car and looked at each other and i said i'm not doing it i'm not going to try and find an extra seventy-five thousand euro on top of what we had already agreed which is the four hundred thousand. the only reason why the four hundred thousand was happening in the first place was because of the shared equity scheme that had been brought in that was going to you know they were going to buy 30 percent of the house so it meant we would get a lesser mortgage on the four hundred thousand euro house and then to add insult to injury a couple of weeks ago Cork City Council put up the shared equity scheme limits to 475. But that to me is pushing people out even further because you're now getting a mortgage for even higher. Like you're going to have to have more savings because I don't know about a lot of other first time buyers, but for us personally, trying to get a mortgage of you know 400,000 so that's like what 80,000 euro more than what we had originally gotten approval for in principle then to get approval for the shared equity and then to make up savings on top of that it just was a no-go for nearly half a million euro basically a mortgage Um, of 400,000 euro I don't think I'd sleep Anna for the next 20 years I really don't yeah yeah, and I think that's what really shocked us was the fact that it was so kind of like they were so chillaxed about just adding on seventy five thousand euro to the cost and thinking that we'd be like, Yeah, perfect, no problem. And I now look, don't get me wrong, I'm sure he sold the house like the following week or something. Mm. But Can you get just, your money back I, by the way that you'd given? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it back, thank God. And like yeah, it was weird, he actually hadn't cashed like the check that we had given him or anything like that. Um so like I suppose that check was just kinda holding the house for us until like we agreed, but I presume he knew himself that he was going to be charging extra money. So until we agreed on the four seven five, that's probably why he didn't cash the check. Um but yeah, okay, I, just I guess it, in, in a way in a way, Anna, you kinda have to look at it from his point of view and 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 the reason i say that is we got some work done here at coogan towers in in 2020 and i remember at the end of it when i was settling up the last couple of bills covid had hit and supply chains had happened and i remember the buildings builder saying to me do you know what he said if we were to start again i couldn't do it for that price he said i'd be up in you by at least a third Oh, absolutely. And I have a friend that built um, in West Cork and like even before the pandemic, her um, a lot of her materials, let's say, like as in foundation wise or whatever, were like six and a half thousand. And when they went back, it was just after the pandemic had started, they jumped up to 16,000, but they had to pay it because they had no choice. Do you know? Um, But yeah, we were kind of, I don't know, I suppose it just was a bit of a shock to us because it's so hard to concerned like... Just going to wait it out. Just going to ride the wave, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and no can you hold that, on the mortgage approval? Like that is that still alive? I mean, if you saw no. a place tomorrow, no, 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 no. And it's only for six months, so you have to reapply then again after that. And I suppose it's just so hard. I think for people that are in our position as well. And like my rent, even alone, like my rent is fifteen hundred euro a month. I'm paying that on a three-bedroom house every month and then having other friends that have bought houses that they bought, let's say, five years ago or things. Do you know, it's just like mm. you're working hard. You're just trying to get somewhere to live that's your own and essentially I'm paying someone else's mortgage. Do you know, it's just... Yes, you are. And, and how are you meant to save, like, as well as paying that? Yeah. 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 Mm. Scary times. Yeah. Impossible situation. Anna, thank you very much for that. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. The house went up four from four hundred thousand 
to 470-something thousand in the space of a few months. The builder putting it down to the cost of materials. The builder probably right. As I said, I do remember the situation at Coogan Towers where the builder said to me at the end of the job, he said, there's no way, he said, I could have done it for you at that price now. Not a hope in hell. 0818 96 96 96. Just on Dr. Chris Luke. He treated me, says Christine. I have to say he's a clever, organised and a thorough gentleman. And he should be Minister for Health. I imagine he would bury his head in a pillow and scream if you even suggested it. But kind words, Christine, thank you. 0818 96 96 96. We want to cut the cost of living. For one loyal listener. Live free in 23. Is coming. Spending money. money. Get all the details with Casey and Ross. Monday at 8.15 a.m. Only on Cork's 96FM. The lines are live. Hello. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the opinion line with PJ Coogan. The text to WhatsApp is 0833969696 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Join the conversation. One lively conversation this morning is the one on health and we spoke at length to Dr. Chris Luke, uh, the worst he has ever seen and believe me, Chris has seen it all at this stage. Worse than it was in January 2021 as many people have have discussed and you get a sense from from Chris and others that they're actually scared by where this is going um, and that's based on their medical background, their years and decades of experience at the front line of medical practice that they're scared some of them as to where this is going to end up during the night we got an email from Mark uh, Mark is in hospital at the, mo- at the moment. He's in CUH. He had an accident uh, before Christmas. He had a couple of rounds of surgery and we wish him well. Uh, we wish him well with his, with his recovery. But that wasn't the reason uh, for writing. Mark says, I listened to your show yesterday as you discussed the full-blown crisis now toppling our hospitals and health system and the chronic conditions that staff have been left to work in. And working indefinitely. I say indefinitely because this isn't going to end soon. By the end of March, I predict the disastrous situation that exists right now will have become the aftermath of a disaster that's just unimaginable. A week into my stay here at CUH, I got a positive result to a COVID swab. I was very unwell after my injuries. Two rounds of surgery have put me back on the road to recovery, thankfully. But within five minutes of discovering there was a positive COVID case on a post-surgical recovery ward, a hospital team dressed from head to toe in protection gear ordered all visitors out immediately. And there was no reason given. Before I was ever informed that I was the patient with COVID, this team started to quickly stuff all of my personal belongings, including family Christmas gifts, randomly and roughly into bags and just take them out of the ward. Then one of the team told me, in fact almost shouted at me, that I was COVID positive. 
They cleared the hallway outside, telling people to stand clear or leave, while I was literally frog-barched to the COVID isolation ward. I never felt so humiliated in all my life. I felt like I had Ebola, PJ. In a hospital that is full of COVID, RSV, influenza, strep A, you name it, it's all here, I felt the reaction to my diagnosis to be both over the top and out of order. They could have just quietly asked me to follow the nurse to the COVID ward instead of enacting a state of emergency. I've been here now in the COVID isolation ward for a week. It's the most depressing and frightening place I have ever been. Every type of patient is confined here until their seven-day isolation is complete. It's nothing short of shocking on any number of levels. Most importantly, my heart goes out to the nurses, the care assistants and the cleaning staff. I particularly want to focus on the nurses. They are, from what I see every day, at breaking point. What they're being expected to do by their peers is beyond impossible. And the signs of burnout can't be hidden anymore, just for the sake of their terrified patients. The nurses are the backbone of any hospital, and it's smooth and efficient running. They are on the point of breakdown. I've worked in the mental health field myself for many years. The signs are as clear to me as the light of day. These nurses are in trouble. They tell you they can cope, but the sad fact is they can't. There can be no hospital without our nurses, and they are broken. Of course, they'll deny this because of a fear of being disciplined by the people above them at the higher ranks of the HSE or by management at the hospital. I was told under strict anonymity by a nurse I spoke to this week that the senior nurse on the ward had taken a half day and therefore no decisions could be made without consulting her and when she is not working she was not to be disturbed. This nurse spoke to me under strict confidence and then she started to cry as she spoke. She said her husband is out of work because of long-term illness and she has teenage children at home. She's what you might call one of the great old-school nurses who probably knows a lot more than some of the junior doctors around her. Most of them, actually, if you ask me, look terrified in the face of this tsunami as they try to clear their morning round. My nurse is broken-hearted and terrified. She told me it wasn't a fraction as bad as this here in COH during the COVID outbreak in 2020. At least back then, COVID patients took up one complete, isolated, purposely reconstructed part of the hospital. The big difference now is most of the patients in the hospital are getting COVID in the hospital. Its contagion and infection rates are so high and so fast. Many of the staff are working their shifts unaware that they too have COVID. It's spreading so fast it can't be contained and that's the way it's going to remain as far as I can see. My nurse told me they're dreading the next two months right up to March. She said COVID weakens the immune system, leaving anyone with it up to up, wide open to flu, RSV, pneumonia, you name it. She sat talking to me on what was meant to be her break and told me she felt she was on the verge of cracking up. She heads up a team of three under which normal circumstances should be anything so much bigger. But she believes normal has been replaced by chaotic on all levels. Four nurses looking after dozens of patients, both infected and uninfected. She can't sleep when she goes home after a 14-hour shift. She spends the first hour crying because she knows her team would be lost without her if she quit, left in precarious, dangerous states and a state of uncertainty due to the crisis. 
I made my way to the bathroom at three o'clock this morning. One of the patients had vomited all over the floor. I peed into a pigeon instead. On the way back to my bed, one patient's catheter bag had become loose. The pool, the floor around his bed was a pool of urine. The nurse arrived, explaining she was sorry. She had 18 other patients, uh, one of whom, an elderly man, was in the final stages of his life. It was as though he had enough of all this and was just giving up. A man who seemed pleasant and sparkly when I came in here was now sleeping all the time and refusing food. The higher ranks of bosses, the ones you never see, are trying desperately to send COVID patients home, even though they're still isolating for seven days and their symptoms are highly contagious. This is an attempt to lower the trolley numbers in the ED to save face in the trolley watch statistics. The bosses at the top, says Mark, don't care about patients. They want to be perceived as a well-run, well-managed hospital, whereas behind the walls, the reality is pure hell and it's just going to get worse. COVID patients get all their meals in disposable containers with plastic tray, wooden knife, fork and spoon, cardboard cup for tea and everything's destroyed after you've eaten. An industrial dishwasher destroys the COVID virus so why can't COVID patients be treated like humans considering so many of us got the virus in here? More importantly, I fear for the nurses. They're facing an Armageddon of a task. Their own physical and mental health is in grave danger. There are people dying in this hospital. One doctor said to me confidentially, and that's part of the grief and lack of support the nurses are left to take home to their private lives. Stephen Donnelly said yesterday, it's going to get worse before it gets better. His flippant, tiresome platitudes annoy me. I'm sure he gets a better night's sleep than the nurses he claims to support. If Mr Donnelly was admitted to hospital with COVID, he wouldn't be lying in any sort of room I'm lying in this morning. Best wishes to all those in hospital right now. My thoughts and my prayers are with our nurses. Stay safe. Thank you. That's a verified email from a verified patient and inpatient in CUH right now. Thank you, Mark, for that food for thought. Yes, a bit of a lengthy read, but I'm glad you stayed with me for the last few minutes and we get through it. 0818 96 96 96. There's been a lot of activity in Killarney over the weekend. I, I was there, actually, for New Year, and I heard about this late on uh, New Year's Eve night of trouble in what used to be the Killarney Ryan. It's, it's as you drive, if you know Killarney, uh, I'm there many, many times a year. I love the place. As you drive into Killarney, there's a roundabout and a very large super value there on the corner, Daly's. And there are what used to be the old Ryan Hotel, and, and there's a number of, of there's an accommodation centre gone in there. Uh, Councillor Paul Hayes, good, good morning to you. Um, there was trouble in Killarney at the weekend, and there was also trouble and fears expressed in West Cork that people who made trouble or caused trouble or were involved in trouble in Killarney might now be moving to West Cork. What can you tell us? You're in Clonakilty. Good morning. Morning, PJ. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly. Look, um, yeah, like like yourself there. I, I spend a good bit of time down in Killarney. Lo- love the place. Uh, I was actually down there yesterday working as well, um, and a lovely buzz around the place. To be honest with you, people were enjoying the last couple of days before kids went back to school. Um, but yeah, look, there was certainly a dreadful incident there on, um, at the weekend, and there's no justification for it whatsoever. Really, um, look, it, it's being investigated and. 
there's court proceedings and all that pending. So I suppose look, we have to be kind of careful what we're saying yeah. too. Um, but yeah, certainly look, I picked up um, on, on some of the media coverage on the back of that. Uh, and yeah, certainly look, people were being um, sent to other uh, asylum-seeking um, uh, centres around, I think, County Clare and one in Clannacilty as well. So I suppose, look, I made some inquiries that, that I saw an awful lot of online commentary in 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 the uh, in the past couple of days and as 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 usual with this subject i suppose to look at it is quite a sensitive thing and it's quite a uh, uh, i suppose but yeah it's it's kind of incendiary i suppose some of the the, the commentary around it um, yeah. and look a lot of stuff online people get mixed up with um, people seeking asylum they're mixing up the ukrainian refugee system and then you know on top of that then you've people you know, here there are economic migrants coming here for work. You know, yeah. and many of those are actually EU citizens who are free to move around anyway. Indeed. But as I said, look, you know, and, and some of that com- it's important to say, Paul. Some of the commentary is deliberately conflated by those who would not wish well to anybody coming into our country. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and as I said, yeah. look, we're, we're, I. I, I tried to kind of cut through all of that side of things and I contacted, you know, the Clannacilty Lodge yesterday, um, which is the um, assigned uh, asylum seeker uh, centre in West Cork uh, and has been for over 20 years. Uh, Looking, I, I'd, I'd have a good relationship with the management up there and uh, I, I've worked with numerous families up there over the years as well. And just from the outset, I, I'd like to say as well, look, I mean, the the whole um, asylum seeker uh, experience from a client guilty point of view has been, you know, ma- massively positive. I think mm. from from our side of things, from from the people of the town, um, you know, th- there's a community garden adjacent to the to the centre where you know the, the residents would grow vegetables and all that, and they yes. grow plants that are um, you know are used by the local tidy towns committee. And look, they're involved in art exhibitions, all that kind of stuff, and yeah. integrated really well into town as best as possible. But there's huge frustrations up there. Um, you know, there's like there's whole families living in a, a single room up there. You know, it's and and they're there for years on end, like in this kind of legal limbo. It's just mad yeah. stuff, and like it's not a healthy atmosphere at all. It's all for for adults or children so like my, my well, what, what do you know that, Paul about there was the story around mm. that some people had been moved from the site of that incident in Killarney had been moved to, to Clonakilty and, and that makes locals nervous so what have you been able to find out yeah, certainly. Yeah, and uh, I, I contacted management to, to get clarity on that situation. So what I was told uh, was that, yeah, certainly it was a husband and wife uh, couple from Algeria um, had been moved from the centre in Killarney uh, to the Clannacilty Lodge in Clannacilty. Um, from what I was told, again, um, the, 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 the woman in question is six months pregnant and allegedly... Uh, you know, she had been attacked in the centre in Killarney and that her, that her husband had stepped in to defend her. Okay. Again, I'm not sure of what other... And best to stay away from the details, but yes, she, totally. she, was, exactly. she was moved yeah. out. Your understanding is she was moved out of Killarney to Clonakilty for her own safety mm. and her husband with her. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, I asked the management, I said, look, is the woman okay? And they said, look, she, she's she's quite badly bruised, all right. Uh, and there was just obviously concern that, you know, seeing as she's six months pregnant, that everything's okay in that regard, but they were getting me- medical assistance. But I did ask as well. I said, look, are you guys concerned for your own safety and, and the safety of the staff up there? And, and and the other residents, you know, and, and I was told categorically that there's no... Uh, no worries or concerns in that regard. Uh, the local Gardaí have been very, very proactive and very helpful. They gave a full briefing to the management at Clannacilty Lodge um, and they're in daily contact uh, with them at the lodge as well because, look, there's there's curfews and uh, other, uh, I suppose, things that, you know, the, the, the guests of, or the, the people that have been moved um, from Killarney have to abide by, you know, they, they can't be out after 10pm and all of this kind of stuff and they have to, you know, prove that they they haven't moved uh, location. So, yeah, as a, the Gardaí are, are in daily contact with management at the lodge. So, from 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 speaking with them, you know, I, I'm quite happy that the situation is, is is okay and that there's no imminent danger or anything like that, like to, to the community in Clannacilty, um, you know, and I just wanted to allay the fears and I put up a post on my own page on, on Facebook last night just to let people know what the situation is because, as I said, some of the language was, was quite hysterical and it, it, it made it sound like that there was a, a marauding uh, gang about to hit Clan Kilty and uh, do, do un, uh, unspeakable things to the community there, you know, so it was very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. There was a staff member injured in Killarney in the course of that incident at the weekend. Do, do we know anything about how they are or have you been able to find that out? I haven't, to be honest with PJ. Like again, I, I'm a bit like yourselves. They're picking up bits and pieces from media, uh, anyway. So as I said, some of the finer details I haven't got to the bottom sure. of either. But as I said, I, I I just wanted to make sure from from a clinic guilty in West Cork point of view, you know that you know that there weren't any in, impending issues or concerns sure. for the community, and I, I'm quite just satisfied, back, you know. Yeah. Just come back to what you were saying there about Clonakilty Lodge. Uh, not familiar with, with where it is, to be honest with you, Paul. But that. It's been used for direct provision for, for quite a number of years and you say many families have been there for a very long time, some of them living all in one room. Yet then spoken, I'm aware of this, of the wonderful way in which the, 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 the residents have integrated into the local community and, and now call Clonakilty home and, and, and all they want is the permission to be allowed to stay and live and work and all these kind of things. But to be stuck in one room in a place like that for many, many years on end. That's a problem we got to look at anyway, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. As I said, I mean, you know, I, I was kind of casting my mind back to, to the very harsh uh, lockdown um, restrictions, you know, that were brought in, you know, a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, we were confined to our 2K limit and we were at home and, you know, like as I said, tensions were brewing there. The people were, you know, uh, mm. and unfortunately, like domestic violence and all that went up, you know, because look, the general population weren't used to you know, being yeah. in the role, you know, in the company of people, you know, and their family for such a long time. Like, so I'm, I'm as I said, having spoken to, to a number of the families up there that have been pleading with me to try and, you know, progress their application process or to help them with a, with housing or whatever. As I yeah. said, there's there's huge issues there, and I I really think it's going to come back to haunt us. Like, I mean, you know, we 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 look at programs and things there about industrial schools and laundries and things that were run by the church back in the in the fifties and into the sixties and all of that. And you know, that's a huge stain on our history. 
And yeah. I really do think like that we look back on, on the whole asylum seeker um, process and application and everything that goes with it in, in years to come. And like that'll that'll be an absolute you know scandal, I think, to be honest. And yeah. as I said, like successive governments have failed to grapple with this and deal with it properly. Um, yeah. And as I said, like there's 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 people up there and they've got children and they've gone the whole way through school and out the other end of it. Uh, without having their application processed, and that's that's yeah. that's scandalous, really. Yeah, and there are people who are already integrated into the community. They already call Clannacilty home. They want to live and work in in West Cork. They want to work in West Cork. They'd be perfectly welcome to work in West. Cork. They just want their paperwork sorted, and they can't get it sorted. Yeah, absolutely. That's the situation. There's people there, professional people that would be an uh, an absolute huge benefit to the community and to the economy if they were allowed to work and, and to integrate properly. Uh, and they're they're you know like as I said, the vast vast majority of people up there are are. are you know they're they're quite sad about the whole situation about you know that they find themselves in and you know that they they might see themselves as a drain on 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 the the economy here or whatever like and they'd love to contribute but they're not allowed mm. to and as i said yeah. you know the the, the the whole situation with the ukrainian refugees coming in uh, even though much of that was an absolute shambles as well and very disorganised. It was still a hundred times better than how the asylum seeker um, yeah. process is, is, is done true. in this country. Um, and, and the, you and know, the so look, there, are, there are, are frustrations there. The two things are overlapping uh, and also they're being very cruelly conflated by those with another agenda along the way. Paul, thank you very much. I'm glad that the people who've moved in, uh, they're, they're, they're safe and well now. Uh, the people who've moved in yeah, from Killarney, they're safe yeah. and well, they're brought there for their own safety. Thank you very much. That's independent mm-hmm. councillor in West Cork, uh, Paul Hayes. 0818 96 96 96. Thank you for listening across the year. Here's one of our highlights. Is your husband, is your wife, your partner, your boyfriend, girlfriend, an absolute idiot? Check this one out. My partner got beaten by a dog and she went to the vet to get a tetanus shot. <laughs> she didn't get bit by a werewolf. Oh, it looks like I'm an animal, though. <laughs> one more time. My partner got beaten by a dog and she went to the vet to get a tetanus shot. That actually happened. I would love to have seen the look on the vet's face when she turned up. Sorry about getting bit she by a dog. She also dropped a hammer on her toe. She went to a hammer shop to get sausages. <laughs> Casey and Ross in the morning. Back Monday, January 9th. You can now order your 231 electric Skoda Enyaq from Noel DC Cars. Skoda Sales Dealer of the Year. Exclusively Skoda in the city. Corks 96 Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Corks 96 Yeah, a lot of people still shocked by the idea that you'd clean up a hospital for a ministerial visit in the middle of a crisis like this. I was talking to Chris Luke earlier on. I predicted it will happen. It absolutely will happen. If we heard that one of our local hospitals here or any hospital in the south of Ireland, if it became known to management that a minister was coming for a walkabout, my goodness me, you wouldn't see them for dust and steam and paint and barrels of disinfectant to clean the place up. And there wouldn't be a trolley visible for miles. It would all be great. It would all be a flipping panto. And as... Chris Luke said it would be the greatest insult to the staff 
worked off their feet at the moment, the kind of staff that Mark described in his email from COH. Noel says hospitals getting all shined up for ministers arriving. If I was in charge, I'd probably consider making it worse. Whoever cleans up to keep an overpaid, pampered, out-of-touch minister impressed is obviously not fit for the job. Ministers and politicians are not higher beings. They're in the hospital to see the state of the nation. Why in the name of Christ do they keep doing this? Well, I go one further than that, Noel. Before I wish you down a few seconds there, Angela. I would go one further than this, Noel. And I would say that any minister in 2023, and I'm not signalling Stephen Donnelly out here, but he's in the job at the moment. Any minister that would walk into a hospital ED at the moment and see it sparkling and shiny and clean and running like a well-oiled machine, that if he or she can't see that there's a, a panto performance being put on for them, then they shouldn't be in the job. And I'd ask myself, why uh, someone like, and again, I'm not singling out Stephen Dolly, but if it was him, why he wouldn't stand there and go, okay, guys, it looks fantastic. I'm delighted. But what was it like 24 hours ago? And what are these pictures about? Because that's his job. But it all feeds into a horrible situation. No, thank you. Now, Angela, different story, different kind of story. Your husband plays a bit of pool. Good morning. Good morning, um, PJ. And uh, Happy New Year to you and uh, all of them, your family. And to you, and thank you very much. Now, look, this is, you know, compared to the crisis in the health service, but but this is your story. Your husband plays a bit of pool. We're not going to say where this happened, but what did happen? Um, well, what happened is he he is a very good pool player. I'll give him that. And mm. uh, he does enter um, a few competitions and everything. But by no means is he professional. He he wins maybe a small bit more than he loses, but he's a good player. Yeah. Uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, he went way over to um, the same bar in particular, and it was advertised on Facebook that they were looking for uh, 64 entrants, 20 euros um, ahead for a competition that they were having on that, were sta- that um, was starting next week. He went over, uh, he was told that um, you had to look in for, and they gave in the name of um, the person and to look for them and to give your name and your money. So so there was, he was going over to pay his entry fee of 20 quid and put himself into the draw for the 64 person tournament, correct? Exactly, exactly, MPJ. And he went in. He he played over there maybe two or three times before that, um, with um with our son and with uh, another few people. And mm. he went in, asked him for this person, and said that he wanted to uh, enter the pool tournament. He was um he was told that a person down at the end of the bar was the man he should talk to. He went down, and this is where it gets to him and it gets to me, is that he went down and he didn't know the man, as they say, from Adam. He mm. was told that, oh, um, I heard about him, you, you're too good, and that um, uh, you were, uh, you're above um, the others, so no, you're not allowed to play. Just like that? Yeah, just um, like that, PJ. So but was there a stand, like, in, in the 
competition rules? Was there something about a person being a, like? Uh, oh no! Yes, he's a prize winner. Was there was there something within the rules that said he shouldn't no, be a man? No, no, nothing at all. And it's open them to it said here and um, all names to be given at the end of the bar, payment to be given to this person at the time of entry. And the thing is, I what I suppose really um, that end got to me is that um, my husband is actually a pensioner. Right. So it's not as if he's, what, 20, 30, 40. He's a pensioner. So what I'm thinking is, okay, he's a good player, but are they doing this just because of his age? Is it not just because he's a good player? Yeah. And yeah, and that annoyed me because like, whether whether or not it's to do with his age, Angela. Mm-hmm. If, if, yeah. if, like if they want to run a tournament and have a set of rules that says, well, look, if you're a, a person with, for example, trophies at the cabinet, if you play leagues, if you play competitions, then maybe this isn't for you and call it a beginner's or call it a, a novice's tournament. But if exactly. not, it should be open to everybody. And if he's good enough, he's good enough. And he, if, if he wins, he wins. If he's beaten, he's beaten. That's sport. Mm-hmm. And like he plays um, locally. Um, all I'll say is that we are East Cork direction. He okay. plays, uh, yeah. He plays there's, um, a few bars um, around the place, and like he he might he'll enter a competition. He might win. He might lose. Yeah, but he'd no, be known he, as a decent player, and if he exactly. turns up. He's a, he's a good player. He's worth watching. He's worth having. You know, there's good darts players. There's good ring players. There's good everywhere you go. There's good snooker players. They're in every club, but there's always one player who's great. In fact, the guy who's really good is the guy you want to get in the first round and see can you beat him. Exactly. That, like, that's what um, uh, we noticed, that like, the few um, competitions that he would play around, they're delighted to have him in there. As you said, that... Like, they're there that you'd have the younger players coming in and say, yeah, we want to beat him tonight. And it's a good yeah. buzz for them. And it's a good buzz then for around the bar as well. Oh, look, look, Mick, you got Tom. Oh, crikey, Mick. And that, exactly. that, that draws people in. The pub should love that. Like, mm-hmm. here's, here's, here's the local, shall we say, novice player. And I'm making up names to go along here now. Yes, so I here's the that. local Mick. Who, who's mm-hmm. entered the pool, the, the, the pool tournament, and he, God, look who he's after drawing in the first round of that for the Tom O'Jesus. He's good. He has trophies. Best of five frames. The pub will be packed. Exactly. Exactly, PJ. So this is what I can't understand, that why, yes. would, um, why would a pub do that? And as well, that um, I do know that, like, that um, you know, this new public funding that they gave them um, last year, this um, pub actually got public funding to hold um, different things on for yeah, the yeah, yeah. locality to have um, people in to, uh, I suppose, bring up after COVID. That, um, sure, there would sure, be, just um, to bring, to bring business exactly. up and all that. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one. And, and Angela, thank you for that. We, we haven't named the pub and we're not going to, but, but at the same time, I personally think it's quite unfair. As someone who plays a little bit of pool, badly, I stress, <laughs> badly, <laughs> Uh, well, you know. um, Ella, um, my husband and Chris um, uh, will give you a game any time, uh, any time um, you want to play. Do you know? And look, it's it. I, that's unfortunate. Angela, thank you for your call. Oh uh, eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. I know the pool fraternity uh, around 
the, the city and county. They have their own house rules. They have their own way of running tournaments. It's a bit like the darts. They have their own way of running tournaments. And they're entitled to their own way of running tournaments. But but can anybody who is involved in the, the pool fraternity, as it were, explain to me, or to Angela, why you wouldn't let her husband enter because he is, inverted commas, too good? Sure, isn't it good to have someone in the in the draw who is a bit better than the others? It makes it interesting. Am I stupid? But that's how I see it. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Join the conversation. Email opinion at ninety six fm dot ie. This is the opinion line with PJ Coogan. Cox ninety six fm. Yeah, Barbara says I can give you a bit of inside knowledge here. Nursing homes and hospitals will get two days' notice of inspections or of visits by politicians. And that two days, as we've heard many times, is spent just cleaning and steaming and painting and moving things around to make it look like all is hunky-dory. Not only should that not be done... No, it shouldn't be done. It's an insult, as Chris Luke described it earlier on. But also, any minister, and I'm sorry about this now, but I'm saying this, and if they were sitting in front of me, I'd say the same thing. Any minister worthy of office should know that that has been done. And any minister worthy of office should turn around to the management in the hospital and say, come here, what was it like yesterday? And what will it be like tomorrow? We need to stop that nonsense. As Chris Luke has spoken emotionally over the years about how, as a doctor, he himself was almost close to tears watching this nonsense going on around him. Anyway, you could get very angry about it. And staying with health, I've spoken to the Walsh family a number of times over the last few months. You'll remember I went to the house in, in Ballincollig and we spoke, we met, and we looked at the house and how it's been adapted for Dad and, and all of that. And how Sandra uh, and her mom came to us came to the opinion line months ago out of sheer desperation because they couldn't get the care to which dad was entitled. There's no shortage of resources here. The, the, the money, the care will be paid for. It's just they can't get anybody to do it. They couldn't get them then and they still haven't got them now. We talked again before Christmas and Sandra, the one thing you feared you were going to have to do, you're probably going to have to do it. You're going to have to quit college. Morning. Good morning, PJ. It's nice to talk again, but unfortunately the circumstances if not, have gotten worse, I think. I couldn't agree more, PJ. Um, the agency that we did have in the mornings, Monday to Friday, pulled out a week before Christmas. They were employed by the HSC on their behalf. We are now left with absolutely nothing. And it's taking a physical toll on us, it's taking a mental toll not speaking from a selfish perspective, but from a practical perspective, it leaves me in a situation where I can't see any way to continue my master's in UCC. The timetable alone is problematic because I have some morning classes and I can't leave dad in bed all morning unwashed, not turned in the bed if he were to stay in bed, not dressed, not being able to get up. Mum can't do it on her own. On Fridays in particular, I have a huge problem because the new timetable we have basically requires me to be on campus in UCC all day. 
who's going to look after Dad from the physical perspective? Now, he'll be fed and watered, so don't anybody get us wrong there. But sure. his physical needs can't Getting be him out of bed, getting him to the toilet, getting him dressed, Completely. getting him downstairs. Yeah. And he's not suitable for staying in bed all day. He's not at that stage. And God forbid when it comes, we have other plans in place. But we're not there, so I don't want to be imposing it on him. It's contrary to his self-respect and dignity as a person. And I'm not going to take that away from him. And neither is Mum. When I was with you guys in the house in the summer, Sandra, the one thing I noticed as we talked was Dad listening to every word we were saying and oh, recognising everything. Uh, and I saw tears in his eyes as he listened to me say to him, I'll do everything I can, I'll get this he, out there. Yeah. He hangs on every word that everybody says. And Mom and I have been discussing our options over the last couple of days. We're trying to do it out of Dad's earshot, but that's not 100% possible. Because he ain't deaf, and whatever's wrong with him, he ain't stupid, so he knows what's going on. No, he was always a very intelligent man, and we now are pretty certain he knows what's going on. And Mum went into him last night, he was in bed since around 9pm, and Mum went into him last night when she going to bed herself around half 11, 12, as she always does, and as I always do, and she said he wasn't asleep because the eyes were closed, but the minute he heard her creeping into the room... The eyes shot wide open. And he has a way he looks at you sometimes. The eyes nearly double in size. And he stares at you. And then you almost see them glass over with tears. Even though he doesn't actually cry, you can see the the glossiness in his eyes. And he looked at mom as much as said, I know what's going on. I know you're in trouble. I know it's because of me. What can we do? And it broke my mother's heart to see that. She was in tears most of yesterday, thinking that we are in this for the long haul. Like, we have been in it for the long haul, and it looks like we're going to continue to be in it for the long haul. On our own. Not because we can't or won't. What we're looking for is minimal. But you physically can't, Sandra. You physically can't do well, this. Well, as I said before to you, PJ, if you have two carers coming in, Dad needs to be turned twice just to get his sling on him for the hoist. One carer does one turn each. I'm doing two. So I'm basically doing double the work. Now, I've said it before, I will break my back before I leave Dad down. I know. But I'm now being asked to take my current existence, basically, and my future, and rip it up and put it in the shredder. Out of the course that I'm doing at the moment, I was actually offered freelance interpreting work, ironically, for a state body. And I've contacted the HSE, and I've said to them, do you mind explaining to this other state body, you know, fellow civil servants, why I can't accept this work? Oh, that has nothing to do with us, is the answer I get. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we should come back again to the, the reality of this, Sandra, that there's money there. There is money if there. 
there's money there. Like, it's th- 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 anything that can be provided will be paid for, but it's just there's nothing there. Well, PJ, I'm not 100% convinced of that because, like, no. you have to look at the realities as well. God forgive me for saying it, but there's people dying every day. Some of them are perfectly healthy when they pass on to the next world, but some of them would have been in receipt of home health. There are constantly changes going on in the system. Yes, there's a chronic shortage, Mm. but we fail to understand why not even one hour in the week with even one person has come our way. And I'm not saying this from a selfish perspective that, you know, nobody else is deserving of it. Mm. Because they are. But there's something going on in the system. Like, I have correspondence from very senior management in the HSE telling us, oh, we are doing our best. Your dad is a priority, of course, in his circumstances. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing that on the ground. And I know for a fact, because we had a meeting in our house two weeks before Christmas, that the management has still not spoken to the team on the ground directly. Uh-huh. The management who make the decisions. And we had one of those managers present at that meeting. And we had one of the community team representing the body of them, because there was no point in the mall populating yeah. our house. Yeah, yeah. And this was the first time there was any direct communication at all between them. And they seem to be working off two completely different hymn sheets, is all I can say. Yeah. Different agendas. The community team are trying to support us. They're trying to keep that at home. No buts about it. Everybody that comes in here says that they have never seen anybody with dementia looking as well as that, looking as well cared for and in such good condition. I am not saying that to pat our own backs. But even I look at the man, and I only said it a mom a few days ago, I said, my dad hasn't aged in about 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Looking at him, he has not aged. He might yes. be spaced out at certain times. He yes. can't walk or talk. But physically, he hasn't aged. And physically, he's in perfect health. Our PHN was up with us just before Christmas. And she public said, health nurse. By God, yeah, public health nurse. She said, by God, Jim. And she said to him directly, she said, you're getting better cared for here than you would in yeah. any nursing home or anywhere else. Sandra, b- before I, I let you go, because I'm, I'm running short, no reason at the yeah. time. Look, the, you're, you're angry. You're hurting. Your entire family is angry. I'm broken hearted, PJ, because I like I don't want to give off my course. I'm not from a selfish perspective, but I'm actually it's my one outlet out of the house as well. Yeah. And I don't think any family should be put in a position where they have to make stark choices like this. I'm also being stopped from er- getting back earning an income, as basic as it might be. Yeah. I'm being stopped. It's, it's- it's affecting everyone. Sandra, I'll leave it there. We will talk again, if no doubt. Please tell your dad I said hello. Uh, mention me by name because I know he'll remember. And your mum too. 0818 96 96 96. Lastly, and very briefly, on a much lighter note, tomorrow is Women's Christmas or Little Women's Christmas or Women's Little, no like the man, Marguerite. 
Hello, PJ. How are you? There's events all over town. This is such a precious <laughs> tradition in our city. Oh, listen, it's it's great that it's still going, though, isn't it? It's, um, you know, I know there's, there's, it's kind of waned, I think, in other counties, but I think Cork is still flying the flag proudly for... Cork. You couldn't get for, the women of Cork to live up a party night. You could not, like... Not no. at all, not <laughs> at all. Any excuse. <laughs> yeah. There's, any, there's, there's a, a big ABBA night at the Oliver Plunkett, but I know there's plenty else going on. There, there is, yeah, God, there, there's events going on all over the city, but we're, yeah, we've, we've uh, with Starlight Entertainment, we've a, an ABBA group called the Super Troopers, and uh, we are in the Metropole on Friday night, which is part of a gala, so it's a big sit-down dinner, and there's music, there's a DJ afterwards, so that's a big kind of sit-down, you know, festive affair, and then on the Saturday night, so we, we said we'd give some stretch out the weekend because one night isn't enough. Uh, we're back in the Oliver Plunkett, um, and that's kind of Prosecco Canapes uh, live band again, the, the, the same kind Great. of show, um, but a different setting, I suppose, just to give kind of flexibility okay. for people. Who, uh, and who the Carrigan Court have, have a have Abba esque. We're, we're like, Abba mad in this city. We always were. We're, we're gone mad. It's like a, it's, a, it's one giant tribute to, to Abba. I think we'll be twin, <laughs> twinned with Stockholm next year. <laughs> all right listen Marguerite I know our time is brief thank you very much have a good weekend with it uh, with all the events that are on to mark Little Women's Christmas that's it today programme edited by Imar O'Hay produced and researched by Fergal Berry thanks very much to Wayne back at base from Coogan Towers I'll see you tomorrow morning just after nine listen and win a year to remember live free in 23 is coming Get all the details with Casey and Ross. Monday at 8.15am. Oh my God! Only on Cork's 96FM.